On today's broadcast of Graceful Truth, our teacher and pastor Steve Converse returns us to the book of Philippians. We're focusing in on chapter three today, Five Marks of a True Believer. Join us, Graceful Truth with Pastor Steve Converse is up next. From Grace Bible Church in Redwood City, this is Graceful Truth with our teacher and pastor, Steve Converse. Again, greetings and welcome to today's program. We're returning to Philippians chapter 3. Those first three verses line out for us. Five marks of a true believer. Not only that, five characteristics that do not verify real salvation. And that's where we find ourselves today. Taking a look at both sides of the coin, if you will, that we might clearly understand our role and responsibility now as believers in Christ. Won't you join us? Here's Pastor Steve Converse now with today's broadcast of Graceful Truth from Grace Bible Church in Redwood City. In 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5, Paul writes this. He says, test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Test yourselves. In other words, examine yourselves. He goes on, he says, or do you not recognize this about yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you unless indeed you fail the test? That's probably one of the most important tests you'll ever take. Who here likes taking tests? Anybody here? Some people like it. They really do. Anybody? Some people love taking tests. Ah, oh, I got a test. I remember those kids in school. They used to irritate me. I did all right, but it, you know, I wasn't kind of a couple bulbs short upstairs, I think, or something. I don't know, because, I mean, you know, I'd, I'd walk away from a test going, yeah, nailed that one, and you get the grade back. It's like, ugh. And you slide in under the thing so nobody sees it, you know, as they walk by. I don't like tests. But here Paul says, you know what? You need to test yourself to see if you're in the faith. And I just want to give you kind of a, a little couple points that you can look at. And, and the New Testament is loaded with tests for true Christians over and over and over again. You see it throughout. And Paul here was, was preaching the gospel as he went into these, these towns. And then these guys would follow him and say, no, you've got to be circumcised and you've got to be this and you've got to be that. And so he goes through and he says, basically, he sums up in, in verse 3, three things that characterize true believers. And they're not actions. If you look at this, we're going to look at this next week, but just to show you what they are. He says, for we are the true circumcision. And then he gives the definition. Who? Who worship God in spirit, first of all. And secondly, rejoice in Jesus Christ. And thirdly, have no confidence in the flesh. It's interesting that those things are not actions. It's not those, you can't do those things. Those are things that you are. Those are attitudes. And those are things that only God can give you. Well, what are some things that, from a negative point of view, when you look at salvation, when you look at your own faith, what are some things that do not, that you shouldn't use to validate your faith? Rather than saying, what, what are the things that validate your faith that we touched on this morning a little bit, let's look at a couple things that are not appropriate tests for your own faith. In other words, when you look at these things, you shouldn't say, oh yeah, I got this one, I must be a Christian. I, I have them written there in your outline. The first one is this. I'll give you five of them, basically. The first inappropriate non-proof, you might say, of salvation is a past conversion or a past experience. Let me say that. It's better to say a past supposed conversion experience. I mean, if you're converted, you're converted, right? There's no going back from that. Well, what do I mean by that? 
See, what I mean by that is some people cling on to something that they did when they were little or when they were a teenager or, you know, early on in their life, some, some experience. They were at a conference or they were at a youth camp and they had the music playing and the, the youth pastor was up there sharing the gospel. And he said, you know, if you want to accept Christ, you need to come down here and bow your heart to Christ. And you did that. You came down the aisle and you bowed your heart to Christ right there. Nothing wrong with that. A lot of people come to Christ that way. What's sad is that doesn't make you a Christian. That experience doesn't make you a Christian. It can, but being a former youth pastor, I, I can count, I don't have enough fingers or toes to count of the kids that came forward at times, prayed a prayer, and then, you know, weeks or months later, you look at their life, and it's the same mess it was before. Why? Because it didn't do anything. Nothing happened. Sure, they walked down an aisle, and they raised their hand, or they did whatever, but there was no conversion. It was all sentimentality. It was all emotions. They looked over and all their friends are, what are they going to do, stand there? No, they're going to come forward too. It's a herd mentality sometimes. See, I think when God touches somebody's heart, they're converted. And you'll see fruit of that conversion in their life. Just because they prayed with their Sunday school teacher, they prayed with their mother, they prayed with their father, they went forward in a church service, they signed a card, they went to the youth meeting, whatever it is. All those things may be good things, but if that's all you're holding on to, we got problems. Let me say it this way. It's no proof that you're not a Christian if you can't remember when you came to Christ. Have you ever asked, have you ever asked people, well, when did, you become a, when did you come to Christ? And they say, I kind of grew up in a Christian family, and I don't really have that one time. You know what? That's okay. Some people would say, oh, no, no, no. You need the day, the hour, the minute, the second. You got to remember everything. It's not proof that a person is not a Christian just because they don't have their, their little daytime route. Yep, it was, you know, January 14th, 19th, whatever. A lot of us know when we were converted. A lot of us know when God did that work in our heart. But you know what? You don't hang on to that event. See, a lot of people hang on to that event, and then God's not doing anything in their life, and their life's a mess, and they're going, well, are you a Christian? Oh, yeah, I'm a Christian. Well, how do you know? Well, I prayed this prayer back in 1960, and, you know, they said I was a Christian. Was God working in your life? No. Are you doing what God wants you to do? No. You're reading scripture, praying, fellowship. No, I'm not doing any of those things, but I know I'm a Christian because I prayed this prayer. Sad. They're deceived. They're deceived. They came through the process of believing, you might say, but there was no work in the heart. And we have to be careful sometimes that we don't bring evangelism down to this little formula. That's not what it's about. Some people have lived in a, a pagan situation. They were raised in an unsaved saved family. At some point, they were exposed to the gospel somehow. And the more you were exposed to it, the more you realized, you know what? I need to get right with God. This is a real thing. And God's taking you through that process. I doubt if anybody here, the first time they heard the gospel, just said, yep, I want to become a Christian. Time. Usually it takes a myriad of times. So it's not a proof that a person is not a Christian because they don't have some event it's okay if you have one. That's great. I have one. I remember the day, the hour, everything. But it doesn't matter if you don't. That doesn't make you a non-Christian. Because some people say they're Christians. They're holding on to an event. And that's, it doesn't matter. Turn over to Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8. See, and this is part of the, the discerning. This is part of the understanding. Well, what's, what's the response to the gospel mean? What is an authentic response to the gospel? In Acts chapter 8, in verse 9, look at, at verse 9 there. It says, <clears throat> but there was a certain man named Simon 
who previously practiced sorcery in the city and astonished the people of Samaria, claiming that he was someone great, to whom they all gave heed, from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the great power of God. Isn't that typical? They got the whole thing backwards. His power wasn't from God at all. It cracks me up. You, you, know, you hear these people sometimes on these talk shows and they're into all this weird, you know, seances and all sorts of things. And, and you know, the talk show hosts say, oh, that, God really gave you a gift. <laughs> yeah, maybe Satan gave him a gift. I don't think God gave him that kind of gift. God doesn't that kind of behavior. Now here he was in Samaria and he was astonishing all these people. And this magic that he practiced was probably some demon activity. Something weird going on. And he probably was clever enough and decided to think, you know what, uh, I'm going to use this for my benefit. And people actually said, boy, he is just the greatest. Look at this guy. This man is the great power of God. Verse 11. And they heeded him because he had astonished them. What you got to do is turn on your TV to some of the Christian shows. You see coliseums full of people. And you have some individual up on the stage and doing all weird stuff. People are falling all over the place and just crazy. And yet, what are the people doing? Oh, they're astonished. Verse 12, but when they believed Philip, as he preached the things concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, both men and women were baptized. Now follow this. Verse 13, then Simon himself also believed. And when he was baptized, he continued with Philip and was amazed, seeing the miracles and signs that were done. Now Simon himself, what? He believed. He had an event. Something, uh, you know, took place here. Philip was preaching, preached the gospel. He responded. So Simon could look back and say, I remember the day when Philip was preaching. I remember the day that I was baptized. It says there, even he continued with Philip. He followed him. And it says there that he was amazed at what he saw. Why do you think he was amazed? He was, he was amazed because the power of God was infinitely greater than the power of Simon or the power of Satan even. He couldn't believe what he was seeing. Go down to verse 18. And when Simon saw that through the laying on of the apostles' hands the Holy Spirit was given, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power, that anyone on whom I lay hands may receive the Spirit. What's he doing? See, I want this. This is a good deal. I can make a lot of money with this deal. I'll even pay you in advance for it. You go out and you lay hands on people and they get the Spirit? This is, this is a neat miracle. How do you do this? He's amazed by it. It's the greatest trick he's ever seen. What happened was the apostles were laying hands on these new believers, and I'm convinced they began to speak in languages, just like they did on the day of Pentecost. And the whole point was to associate them with the, the original church, the, day, the church that was born on Pentecost. These were half-bred Samaritans, and, and uh, they were one with the Jews in Christ. So they began to speak in these miraculous languages, indicating that they had the same spirit as everybody else. And he says, I'll pay you for this. Look at verse 20. But Peter said to him, your money perish with you because you thought that the gift of God could be purchased with money. You have neither part nor portion in this matter for your heart is not right in the sight of God. Repent therefore of your wickedness and pray God if perhaps the thought of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are poisoned by bitterness and bound by iniquity. Yeah, he had an event, all right. Didn't do him much good, but he had an event. He was baptized. He believed. He did all this stuff. He was holding on to that. Verse 24, Simon answered and said, Pray to the Lord for me, that none of these things which you have spoken may come. So when they had testified and preached the word of the Lord to Jerusalem, 
preaching the gospel in many villages and in uh, to the Samaritans. He's going to perish. This guy's going to perish. He thought he could buy the gift of God with money. He had no portion or part with it. He goes on. His heart wasn't right before God. He was wicked. He needed to repent. Even the intentions of his heart were wicked. And you say, well, was he a Christian? He got baptized. He was this. He was, he believed. He had an event. That's all he had. That doesn't prove anything. That's why I say just to have an event doesn't make you a Christian. There has to be a conversion. Quickly, a second moral proof there. Living by a moral code. In other words, you look at your life and you say, you know, I'm doing, I do nice things to people. I help out. I, you know, I try to do as much as I can for people. That's what being a good Christian is all about. There are many moral people in the world, beloved. Look at the Mormons. They're very moral people. Very family-oriented people. Very caring people. Very charitable, very kind. There's a lot of people like that. There's a lot of unsaved people in very liberal churches. They probably do a, a lot more for, for the downtrodden and the down and outers, the homeless people, than you or I ever would even think of doing. It doesn't make them a Christian. Some people are set to live according to the Ten Commandments. That's why whenever you share with somebody, use the law of God. Just ask them, have you kept all the commandments? Nobody's perfect. Nobody can do that. They'll have to answer, obviously, no, I can't. So a moral code doesn't, just because you live a moral life, that doesn't make you a believer. Now, mind you, all these things are good things, but if you're just focusing on one of these, you may be missing the mark. Third indicator that doesn't verify your salvation is the knowledge of truth. Call it head knowledge. I mean, there's a... I mean, some people are just amazing with, with the way their minds think and the way that they can recall things. And I'm here to tell you, I'm not one of those people. I'm just not. I mean, you know, I can be going to the store and, and Abika say, you know, I get a gallon of milk or whatever. I'm just like, okay, fine. And I get to the store and I'm walking around the store. What in the world did she tell me to get? I literally cannot remember. And it drives me nuts. So when she makes the, you know, okay, get, how many things is it, first of all? Oh, it's just two things. Okay, write it down. Just write it down. It's just so much. Oh, you can remember this. Eggs and milk. You know, I mean, how hard is it? I get in Safeway. I look like an idiot walking around going, ah, what was it? My mind doesn't, I don't know what's wrong with me, but my mind doesn't think that way sometimes. And it's hard for me to just recall things. There's some people, you ask them a question. Oh, that's, boom, right here. Just amazing. Amazing. But you know what? That doesn't make them a Christian, beloved. That doesn't, that doesn't matter. I mean, it's great if you're, knowledgeable that way and you can assimilate facts quickly and think quick on your feet, that's great. God's blessed you that way. He didn't bless me that way. I don't know why, but he didn't. But there's some people, they know that God is three in one. They know all the facts about God. They know that Christ is deity. They know that uh, Christ came to the world and he did miracles. They know that Christ died on the cross. They know that he died a substitutionary death. They know that he rose on the third day, that he offers salvation by grace. They know all that stuff. It doesn't make him a Christian. That's not what a Christian is. In fact, the Pharisees and the scribes, like the other Jews, like Simon, when they were looking at an event, like the rich young ruler who was looking at the moral ethical standard that he kept, well, other Jews knew all about Christ from his birth on. I mean, they studied it. They knew it all. They knew everything about him. That's why Christ says in Matthew 12, you can't be saved. You've committed an unpardonable sin. Well, what's he mean by that? In other words, you know what? You've seen it all. You've heard it all. You've experienced all, and you won't believe it. You have it all in your mind, and yet you will not bow the knee to Christ. Even in Hebrews, he says, 
The writer of Hebrews says you've been enlightened. You've tasted of the heavenly gift. You've tasted the powers of the age to come. But what? You won't believe. You won't receive it. It's not enough just to have head knowledge. You have to have that knowledge that works its way down to your heart. The Bible says clearly faith without works is what? Dead. James 2.19. The devils believe and tremble. They're not saved. You can believe it's all true. That does not make you a Christian. That does not make you someone who has been converted by the hand of God. I mean, just stop and think of Judas. I mean, how much more information could you have in your head? This guy spent time with the Lord and with the apostles, and he saw everything that they did. He knew it all. He knew it all so well that even the apostles didn't even catch on to what was happening. And yet he was never once saved. He was never saved. Went to his own place, and he committed suicide. So knowledge is the third thing. Fourthly, another non-proof of salvation. Let's just call it religious activity. Religious activity. In other words, going to church, being baptized, taking communion, candles, prayer beads, whatever you want to do. Okay, pilgrimages, all that stuff that does not make you a Christian. Remember when we were down in Mexico with the young people, one time we saw this group of people, and the leader of the group was carrying this cross, and they actually had kind of beat this guy with something, I don't know, but I mean, he had bruises on his body, and he was actually even bleeding. And there's people behind him, this parade of people. It's around Easter time, and they were crawling on their knees. And I asked the pastor, I go, what's this about? Oh, this... <laughs> This, this goes on every year. These people go up and down the streets. It's horrible. I mean, their knees are literally raw. And they're thinking somehow that they're, they're earning favor from God by doing this. They're deceived. They're caught up in religious activity. Just because you come to church, that doesn't make you a Christian. It, it just doesn't work that way. I wish it did. I wish just pulling people through those doors automatically they became a Christian. It just doesn't happen. I, you know, I, I really do. It'd be so much easier that way. But God has to do a work in your heart. So religious activity, and the last thing here, this is a big one. Service in the name of Christ isn't proof of your salvation. There's many people, beloved, who so-called accept the call, and they enter into the ministry only to just crash and burn. I've heard stories of pastors who weren't even Christians, and they had thriving ministries. Thriving. I spoke here yesterday. I was listening to him. He said, you know, he said, until God touched my heart, he goes, I look back on my 30 years or 25 years of ministry. He goes, I don't know what I was doing. In successful churches, gifted speaker, I don't know what I was teaching. Somebody 80 years old finally called me aside and said, you know what? You're not teaching the gospel. He said, what do you mean I'm not teaching the gospel? He goes, that's all this guy said. He goes, I didn't understand what he was saying. But he goes, I look back on it now, and I realize I was out in left field. It's so easy to get fulfillment from serving. And if that's the motivation, boy, that, that's sad. Because I think people that are in that, in that mindset are really going to be the people that stand before the Lord one day and say, Lord, Lord, haven't I done this? Didn't I pastor a church? Didn't I marry people? Didn't I baptize people? Lord, didn't I give money to the church? Didn't I do all these things? And he's going to say, you know what? I don't even know who you are. I don't know about you, but that strikes a little chord of fear in my heart. <laughs> we don't want to be trusting in things that we mentioned. All those things are good things, like I said. But unless you see God actively working in your heart as a Christian, I think it's time as a church and as individuals we stop remembering, remember the day when I first got saved, and oh, I was so on fire for the Lord. I hear people say that and my heart breaks. I was like, well, what happened? What do you mean you were on fire for the Lord? Oh yeah, when I was in ministry, I was doing, what do you mean when you were in ministry? Why aren't you in ministry now? 
what, I mean, I don't understand this. You know, sometimes we, we say things, and it, words mean things, but it confuses me. We need to stop, and we need to say, God, where is my heart before you? Is it a heart that wants to worship you in, in a sincere way? Is it a heart that, that really wants to yield itself to you and, and just forget about all the trappings of everything around me and just say, God, do what you want to do in my life. I just want to bow before you and, and, and humble myself before you and you do your work. I don't, I don't want to set my agenda aside and, and God, whatever you want to do, go ahead and do it. That's where God needs us to be as individuals, as a church, as his people. That's what he wants. He wants hearts that are yielded to him. Remember when I first came to Grace, I had like this six-month plan in my head. Six-month plan. Yeah, we're going to go in there, just, you know, boy. And I got here, and I well, six months may be a little aggressive. We'll change it to 12 months. And looked at 12 months, and I'm like, well, you know, maybe 18 months. That sounds good. How about three years? Finally, God tapped me on the shoulder and said, what are you doing? What, this, first of all, it's not your church. You just can't do whatever you want with this church. This is my church. I gave my only son to die for this church. Who do you think you are? I mean, I want to say, well, I think I'm the pastor. But you know what? That doesn't mean anything. That doesn't mean a thing. I mean, I really like to think that we're all in this together. We're on a level playing field. You know, when you're on a level playing field in a football game, if, if you see somebody running to the left and they need a blocker, hopefully you're not going to sit over here and go, you know, I don't block, sorry. <laughs> No, you play as a team. You go and you say, I'll do whatever I can. Do you ever see these kickers? You know, they, they punt or they kick, they kick off and everybody, they get through the whole, the whole uh, defense and, the, you know, the, the poor kicker's left. You know, he's got those weird numbers usually. Skinny guy or whatever. He's out there against this running back who's just burning up the field. And they always try to make an effort. They don't just sit there and go, I'm sorry. <laughs> go, Brett, I'm a kicker. I don't tackle. They always try it. They usually don't do very well. Usually they like dive and miss the guy completely, but at least they're trying. See, that's what we're called to do as the body of Christ. We're all called to pitch in together and say, hey, you know what? Yeah, I know that what the gospel is. I know that I believe the gospel. What's the next step? The next step is participating in the gospel together. And then you begin to see God work and he does incredible things. But we have to come before him individually first. And I think... Frankly, I know in my heart, I mean, there's, there's need of repentance sometimes. You have to come before God and say, you know what, God, I need to set my agenda aside. I, I want to do what you want me to do. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. Lord, I pray that uh, you would help us to take the words that we've heard uh, this morning and apply them to our own hearts. And, and Lord, I pray that even though those five things we talked about, they're all okay things. Lord, I, I pray that no one here this morning would be trusting in any one of those things as a validity of their salvation. Lord, I pray for each one here this morning that they could look at their life and say, no, I know I'm a Christian because, not because I did something 10 years ago, but because God's doing something in me right now. And I see him at work and I'm growing more like Christ daily. I'm understanding his word more and more each day. I'm learning to serve him in, in ways that once were uncomfortable. But now he's opened up doors and avenues of service before me. and I want to be obedient. Lord, I pray for our church. I pray that we'd be focused on the right things. I pray that we wouldn't get caught up in all the marketing and all the, the chaos that a lot of churches are involved in just to try to impress somebody. Lord, we want to impress you. And Father, we thank you for your grace in our lives. 
We thank you that we don't have to do the dance to get the hug from you. But Lord, you've already hugged us with the blood of your, your son, Jesus Christ. And you've clothed us in his righteousness. And Father, we thank you for your grace in our lives. We thank you that we don't have to do the dance to get the hug from you. But Lord, you've already hugged us with the blood of your, your son, Jesus Christ. And you've clothed us in his righteousness. Well, it is our prayer here at Graceful Truth that God would reveal his grace to your hearts through the teaching of his word each week. We trust you're currently involved in a Bible teaching church in your area. If not, we'd love to have you come and visit us here at Grace Bible Church in Redwood City. We meet each Sunday morning for our praise and worship service at 10 a.m. We offer nursery care and Sunday school classes for our children up to grade five. If you'd like to encourage us here at Graceful Truth, please give us a call at Grace Bible Church here in Redwood City. This is our phone number, 650-366-9923. Again, that's 650-366-9923. Or you can visit us on the web at gracefultruth.org. We've got a lot of resource materials available there, more information about who we are. And if you need a map to visit us at Grace Bible Church, that's there as well. Again, gracefultruth.org. And would you please drop us an email? Let us know you paid us a visit when you stop by. Again, gracefultruth.org. Or give us a call at 650-366-9923. Again, that's 650-366-9923. We thank you for joining us today and trust we'll see you again next week at this same time for another broadcast of Graceful Truth. Graceful Truth.